Yeah, all right. Welcome each and every one of you lovely, lovely ladies and gentlemen. You are listening to Painting Pictures. This is a podcast by myself, Gabriel Roberts. It's about my life, my life on this planet Earth. And today I have a hodgepodge, hodgepodge episode for you. It's got a little hodge and a little podge. And I'm telling you folks, it's just the right amount of both, if you know what I'm saying. So we're going to kick it off. I'm just going to tell you real quick what the segments are so you know how this is going to go. We're going to start off with a little bit of backyard nature. Then we're going to hit you with a little bit of a Easter brunch 420 conversation. Then you're going to get an extended, very special Things That Bother Me, followed by a preachy, preachy segment about emotional health. That'll just about do it. We'll maybe wrap it up with a little song. So if you have any questions, send me an email at gaberobertsart at gmail.com and the website for the podcast, podcast, I'm going to get myself a hop screen for my microphone so that I can say the letter P until then. The website for the podcast is gaberobertsart.com. Let's get it started with a little bit of backyard nature. So here we are in the backyard at 3720 Kimberly Way. It's evening, about 6.40 p.m. Sky partially cloudy, a little bit of breeze. I can see a J up on the wire. And scrub jay is a good place to start. It's kind of the dominant bird back here. It's a very jaunty little fellow. Blue feathers. It's pretty. Um, I used to love them unconditionally because they're birds and I like birds. But recently I've come to to not love them quite as much. And... Um, Part of that is because they they dive bombed a nest of of morning doves. We've got some morning doves that have have made uh, made their nest on the side of our house under under the eaves um, for a number of years. And morning doves are are just the tops. They're about the the gentlest, most peaceful, beautiful, sweet birds that there are. And um, I was so happy to see that they were making a nest again. And then one day I was I was by the window and I saw a streak of blue come jetting out of the air. And I saw some feathers fly. And indeed, I went up. The morning dove had split, and the jay was knocking around in their in their nest. Um, so they're aggressive, and they also chase away the mockingbirds, which are. Well, it's tough. It's definitely a toss-up between the doves and the mockingbirds, but it's hard not to choose the mockingbirds as the bestest birds because they have the most beautiful calls. And I'm going to play for you guys now a segment of mockingbird call, uh, mockingbird song. And um, this first one, see if you can pick out the sound of a car alarm.
So to me, it's it's the sound that goes. That I think they uh, I think they got that from from a car alarm. Now I'm gonna play it for you one more time, kind of isolated. The next Mockingbird song I'm going to play for you has uh, the sound of a little amphibian. And I think you'll be able to pick this one out right away. Did you hear the froggy? The little froggy froggy? So the mockingbirds are amazing and they uh, they were going off we're near the end of April. I feel like the beginning of April is their prime time. And they've quieted down a little bit, but for a while it was uh early morning and all throughout the day and then picking up again for the evening you could you could hear those mockingbirds singing their songs to the point that my dad actually got a little bit frustrated because it started at 5.30 and it woke him up. They're that loud. He wasn't really frustrated. He was, you know, just remarking at how, uh, how loud they are. So that's the birds. I'm hoping that the doves, you know, the little doves are such tender creatures and they're not going to get a nest here this year, that's for sure. I think they're probably past the time of that. And so I'm just hoping they survive and decide to nest here again next year. And if they do, I want to do my darndest to protect them from the jays. And also from, this brings us to the next segment of our fauna discussion, the raccoons. Yes, yes, raccoons in our very backyard with their creepy little hands, their black masks. I haven't actually spotted one in the backyard, but my brother has. And my sister has heard them, I think. We've been hearing uh, this week some really loud noises on the roof. And you know what happens when you're asleep and you hear something? You don't... Because you're because you're asleep, you sort of just want it to go away so you can go back to sleep. At least that's how I treat these things. I, I hear a sound, and I don't fully come into consciousness, I suppose. And I, I think that there's something about me sort of staying still, holding my position in bed that will magically just get me back to sleep and whatever happens will then be nothing but a a memory but I definitely heard some major noise on the roof the other night and I got up finally after hearing it thudding and it was way bigger than a squirrel that's for sure it I almost thought it might have been a human and that's what eventually led me to get up and go stand in the middle of the house to see if I could hear it, but I didn't hear it any longer. And I didn't, I guess, have the balls to go outside and shine a light on the roof. I just kind of figured, Gabe, it's not really a human, you know, if there's a burglar, what are they doing on the roof? Um, so the raccoon, I think, or we think, climbs up by the room where my sister is staying from a fence and whereas after the Jays dive bomb, I had still seen the morning doves occupying their little perch above her window, and still seen what looked to be the the outline of a nest, now I don't see anything, and I have not seen the birds sitting there. I've seen the little pair of doves um, frequenting the area, but I haven't seen them sitting there. And I've also, believe it or not, I've heard their call more since then and it is a very morning call and I don't have a great recording of it right now but I can 
I can kind of do it. Let me just get away from the spa that makes its own little noise. So you guys probably know this, but the morning dove makes a sound like this. I used to be able to go much higher when I was a little boy. And then the other one goes... And they go back and forth like that. The little doveys. And um, I think a coon probably got in their nest and fucked it up and got whatever was left there. Because a raccoon would do that. A raccoon would do that even if it wasn't hungry. A dirty little bastard would go in there and rummage and, and just deliberately demolish a dove's nest because it feels entitled to that and they're assholes I don't like raccoons so we're gonna have to um, well just you know stay aware of the situation and then put up some barbed wire fencing like in a prison a little bit of a little, just a nice little bit of razor ribbon on that fence so that coon can't can't get up there and mess with my doves and then hopefully the doves will come back and make more baby doves next year it's kind of amazing when you see these creatures like the dove that are so helpless and you wonder how they survive well they're good in the air they they fly well um but they basically rely on very good camouflage that's how they get by and I'd, I'd like, you know, I'd rather a bunch of doves, some mockingbirds, because the doves and mockingbirds will hang out in the same tree just fine, whereas a jay will buzz in and, and chase them off. Um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't see, you know, shooting the jays, but I'll definitely do my part to promote doves, and I'm not gonna help out jays, although we did have a baby jay. Last summer, a nest, a scrub jay nest, took a tumble from the tree above our patio, and there were three baby birds, <laughs> baby baby birds, and two of them <laughs> didn't make it. Uh, one of them, I think, did. We sort of tried to protect it. So, you know, here I am complaining about the jays, and just last summer, there I was cooing over a little baby jay doing everything I could to keep it safe in the end what our little actions have the effect our little actions have i don't know but i think they have some effect um i think that you can or i i think that one can cultivate a little slice of nature in in one's backyard and that you know if i were to make an offering to the doves and, and express to them my desire that they come back next year, maybe it would be noticed and maybe I'd get baby doves next year. I don't know. I also saved a bee. I'm in the woodshed now, and by the window are some cobwebs. Some daddy long legger. The daddy long legger spider with the long legs. And I saved a bee from a spider web. That's right. I stepped in the lifeguard that I am, and I rescued a bee from a spider web. And in my mind, I was thinking, eh, should I let the spiders eat? You know, am I interfering with nature? Am I playing God? And uh, also, am I going to get stung? Which I didn't. I ended up having to just basically pick up the bee and toss it out the window, and it was in the... I, I could have sat there. If I were, say, Johnny Pemberton, who has a great podcast, and he likes spiders a lot, he probably would have sat there and watched it devour the bee. Well, maybe not, because he also really likes honey and bees. But I'm sure some people would have, and uh, it would have been quite a show. There were two daddy long leg spiders, and they were on the move. They saw that thing struggling, and they were booking it. I've never seen spiders move so fast across their webs. Um, I got there just in time. The last little bit of fauna news is the squirrel. Of course, squirrels are pretty common, and uh, we have a pool in our backyard, and these little squirrels will drink from the pool. Now, there's a pretty 
long distance between the surface of the water and the surface of the pool deck. And so these squirrels, what they do is they they pin, they grab on with their back feet to the lip of the deck and go on down completely vertically, extending their bodies with their little paws on the side of the tile to reach down and, and sip from the pool. And the, the physical feat, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. Imagine standing at the edge of a giant lake or pool of water, a giant pool, we'll just use the pool for the example, and, and leaning out over it and then just, just hooking your little feet on the edge of the pool and letting your head your head go down head first suspended entirely your whole body straight down to sip f- some water and then getting back from that position can you imagine the back strength and the core strength to go straight back up not to mention the feet strength i mean suppose their tail was coming into play i mean i really i got to watch it closer next time it never struck me how like mind boggling that little feet is and I thought well, that's probably terrible for the squirrel because it's like sort of you know it's pool water. It's it's a salt water pool, but that's certainly no better than chlorine water. Um, and well, but and then I thought, well, what do the squirrels drink? You know, there's no streams around here. And if there are, they're mostly dried up, and they're pretty far from here. Um, and it's probably you know dog bowls. I'll bet. Maybe there's a squirrel lady in our neighborhood that that waters the squirrels. Isn't that interesting when you give water to an animal, you water it, just like a plant. We're going to wrap this up with a little bit of flora news, and that is that the peonies are here. That's right, the peonies are here. It is springtime, and we have five pink peony bushes, and they are sending out those big old blossoms and we are talking big blossoms have you ever seen a peony blossom it is large and in charge it is heavy it's it's full of petals it smells good and it weighs down the entire plant and i actually made sweet little hoops for them for my little peony plants I made little wire hoops for them so that they can lean on when their flowers get so big. Because last year, I had a few peonies, and those blossoms got so big, and they drooped down. And then I did this elaborate, like, staking and um, string thing to prop them up. And then they just died off from that point, like, very rapidly. And so I don't think they like, once they're kind of in their mode, um, they don't like to be propped up. So instead, what I tried to do this year was lay out the um, the peony hoop, sort of a little bit separated, you know, envisioning the future of the plant getting bigger and the blossoms getting droopier. So it's not necessarily touching the plant. Um, it's just going to give it something to lean on when it gets there. They're very sensitive little plants. Um And they're a bulb plant. So this is some basics, but this is what I'm just learning. They come up every year, God willing, from a bulb in the ground, which I don't know if the bulb grows over time and gets bigger. The plants, I mean, I guess you could fertilize them or whatever, and maybe they'd get a little bigger. But generally, it's just like the same old bulb. I don't know how many years this will last. I mean, we've had them for a number of years. I just never really noticed them. And then um, you see nothing. You know, they die back completely probably within a couple of months here and you see nothing for the majority of the year not a thing and then you have to water it uh knowing that there's a bulb there you got to get some water going and then uh just trust that it trickles down to this weird bulb that then decides to shoot up and out and then produce these most phenomenal big blossoms uh, this is a flora fauna note. This combines the two. We got some fauna on our flora in the fashion of antiwants on the peonies, which apparently are an important part of the process of the peony bud opening. 
And there is there is there is one reason why ants deserve to exist. So I know if you're like me, you've got nothing in that list. Well, now you've got something. If you like peonies, you got to like ants because I guess they they hang out on the blossoms and they help it open. Which it's kind of gross, you know, it's such a beautiful flower. Um kind of grosses me out that there's ants crawling all over it, but they don't really they're not like crawling over it in the in the fashion of ants that are like eating things in your kitchen and forming a line. They're they're sort of hanging out. So it's a little less creepy, I guess. Now a public service announcement from the California Department of Transportation. Are you a licensed California driver under the age of 65? Do you find yourself feeling anxious, impatient, frustrated, or even angry behind the wheel of your car? Do you consider residential streets to be an endless race to the next red light? Do you ignore merge signs and accelerate to the very end of a merging lane before finally cutting in? Do you feel entitled to drive at a certain speed regardless of traffic conditions? Do you think that the inertia of your constant tailgating will magically make the traffic move faster? Do you drive a late model Dodge Charger sedan? If so, go fuck yourself. This message is not brought to you by the California Department of Public Transportation, which reminds you to always close with slow for the cone zone and never drive drunk. Thank you. And now a brief seg- segment, seg- segment, a segment of conversation between myself and my elder brother Miles Roberts. This conversation occurred on Easter Sunday on the patio of our backyard after a leisurely brunch and a celebration of the wonderful, time-honored, sacred holiday of 420. They're singing their morning song, Little Morning Does. Did you find the passage? A couple. Cool. So this is just sort of the opening quote. And what's the name of the book again? A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole. Won the Pulitzer Prize, posthumously, posthumously. Cool. When a true genius appears in the world, you may know him by this sign, that the dunces are all in confederacy against him. <laughs> and then describing, uh, this is sort of an intro by the, the fellow who actually got the book published, who, who read it, the manuscript the, from, from this guy's mother. But Toole's greatest achievement is Ignatius Riley himself, intellectual, ideologue, deadbeat, goof-off, glutton, who should repel the reader with his gargantuan bloats, his thunderous contempt, and one-man war against everybody. (laughs) Freud, homosexuals, heterosexuals, Protestants, and the assorted excesses of modern times. Yes. (laughs) uh, Imagine an Aquinas gone to pot transported to New Orleans from whence he makes a wild foray through the swamps to LSU at Baton Rouge, where his lumberjack is stolen in the faculty men's room where he is seated, overcome by mammoth gastrointestinal problems. His pyloric valve periodically closes in response to the lack of a proper geometry and theology in the modern world. Wow. What's a Aquinas? Aquinas? Thomas Aquinas. Okay. Um... I guess like a, a reformation era or, or I mean, an English philosopher. Is he a monk? No. He, I think he was related to the church. Probably got a like a degree of theology or hmm. divinity or something like that. But he was a, an advisor to an English king. Hmm. This book is set in modern times, though, with this character. In the 1960s in uh, New Orleans. New Orleans. New Orleans. Baton Rouge, the South. <laughs> you know, it's a I'm good place. Trying to find his... So he's hanging out 
um, waiting for his mom in downtown, and he gets uh, harassed by a policeman who just sees his oddness and um, comes up to him. <laughs> and is it the part of the police department to harass me when this city is a flagrant vice capital of the civilized world? Ignatius bellowed over the crowd in front of the store. The city is famous for its gamblers, prostitutes, exhibitionists, antichrists, alcoholics, sodomites, drug addicts, fetishists, <laughs> onanists, pornographers, frauds, jades, litterbugs, and lesbians, all of whom are only too well protected by graft. If you have a moment, I shall endeavor to discuss the crime problem with you, but don't make the mistake of bothering me. <laughs> You fools! <laughs> graft? Graft. Graft. Protected by graft. What's graft? Uh, corruption. Mmm. <laughs> this old man comes to his defense and calls the policeman a communist. <laughs> and then eventually Ignatius throws the old man under the bus and calls him a fascist and tries to get the policeman to arrest him instead. <laughs> <laughs> but there's this point where he describes what he does. Oh, yes, here we go. Uh, uh, let's see. It's the communist, the old man interrupted. How old is he? The policeman asked Mrs. Riley, who's his mother. I am 30, Ignatius said condescendingly. You got a job? Ignatius has to help me at home, Mrs. Riley said. I got terrible arthritis. I dust a bit, Ignatius told the policeman. In addition, I am at the moment writing a lengthy indictment against our century. When my brain begins to reel from my literary labors, I make an occasional cheese dip. <laughs> Ignatius makes delicious cheese dips. <laughs> oh, it's just, it's beautiful, the, the, the language and the way... This character is so perfectly in rebellion against, you know, all of these things which are true as, as yeah. problems and as signs of decay, which our, our society had just sort of unconsciously or generally unthinkingly accepted. Yeah. And he's... And doesn't he, like to talk about. Yeah, right. Because we don't really know what to do with it. Yeah. And so we just sort of hide it. Anyway, it's beautiful. I haven't read very much, but... I like the, the lengthy indictment against our century. <laughs> he's getting something done there for sure. He's mm. going. He's taking on a whole century, and he's writing that shit down, mm -hmm. putting into words. Yeah, they talk about he fills up his big chief pads of paper or whatever his his, his notepads. Yeah, just going nuts. That's Hemingway's little system, I guess, was that typewriter up on top of a bookcase and then also a big board to which he had pinned vellum, large sheets of vellum paper that he wrote on. And he only, he wrote in pencil until he felt like he'd really gotten going and then he'd go and hit it on the typewriter. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, and he kept a track of all the words that he wrote every day. Interesting. And they were around... They kept count? Yeah, and I don't know how if he actually counted every word. Maybe he had his wife do it, or if he had, he just knew by the page size. Mm -hmm. Probably could estimate. Mm -hmm. That sounded very specific. Well, right. I remember in that in that in that what was one of his books where he was writing, or it was about a writer. Yeah, the one with the two young women, or the in okay, Spain? yep. And he like is in a hotel, and he's always writing. Yeah. Yeah, I remember him describing like how much he did yeah day. did you read the one oh there that jay just landed right on the corner of the shadows mm -hmm. the shadow of the escalonia stretches out across the lawn and the mulch and like a straight line of bender board in between mm. and there's a very sharp confluence of the bright green of the lawn and the bright yellow of the mulch in the sun where they hit the shade and there a small raptor with blue feathers Looks for worms or buries something. Yeah, what were we talking about just before that? Before the bird captured our attention? Yeah. 
A little more cafecito. I think so. We're finishing up a delicious brunch here. All that remains is a bowl of strawberries and a small Easter bouquet with a little tiny purple tulip. Maybe one of the only tulips that we purchased that is opening. But crap tulips from Rayleigh's. Wow. The stems were moldy. They're very small. They mostly are kind of pathetic and they fell over. Well, moldy stems, that's not good. We got some $7 tulips from Trader Joe's today whose blossoms probably measure a solid three and a half inches. Long? <laughs> Hemingway's words, by the way, just people are wondering how much this guy wrote, got over a thousand once in the rundown that I saw, maybe five days. And then there was some, that, one that was like 290 something. What are you talking about? Hemingway's uh, word count, daily word count. You read that? Yeah, I read a little bit of this article on the Paris Review. It had a very nice flashing logo in its right-hand sidebar of its blog. Kind of, it was like an artsy, like, subscribe in, like, a cursive script on a yellowy background. Mm -hmm. Very much the hip, like, retro look. And mm -hmm. then a shot of their logo, the Paris Review. Mm -hmm. And they're nailing the story about Hemingway. I mean, they're totally hitting that 1920s Paris vibe. With the flashing sign? Yeah, with their little their little game. Their little, whatever their little game is. But I'm looking forward to uh, reading the article. I actually bookmarked it. I used a... I probably have like five bookmarks. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, my God. I've got thousands. I've, I also have a very end? unsuccessful Evernote account. Do you know that web app? Mm -mm. That was one of the first web apps I discovered. I actually had a spreadsheet of web apps for a little while because I thought I wanted to know about all of them. <laughs> I have a page, it linked all of their sites in a little summary. Was that the, one of the first lists you made in your yes, web notes? Yes, yes. But I bookmarked this Web one. apps of the future. Yeah, and the Evernote one seemed great. It was like you could keep track of everything. Mm -hmm. The logo was an elephant. And you could tag everything. And, but then, of course, you could spend your whole time just trying to figure out how to use that or thinking about how many different lists to make. I make a list of there. lists to make. You're a big bookmarker. Have been, but then I realized I never used them. <laughs> and I, it, it, then it sort of passed the point where I really could. It was, I mean, I can. I can search through them, which is nice. Mm. Keyword search. Um, but it's there's just so much. The cataloging job that's needed is is uh, immense. Yeah. And there are people that are doing it. There are people that, you know, they archive stuff and, yeah. and and make these incredible libraries of information. Yeah. Not quite my flame. I would like to use those libraries, though. Sure. Well, I think ideally we get connected to our vibe very strongly. And then we find the news that we're looking for, or the reading that we're looking for, it comes to us. Mm -hmm. But there do, I, I do think, that's kind of the, a counter-argument. Well, extending that argument, and then you do the counter-argument, all right? Extending that argument. Uh, oh, damn it, I just forgot it. No, I didn't. Bookmarking, cataloging. The job of a cataloger... Um, is important, or I'm going to say it isn't important because we're all going to find our news. It'll all, it'll come to us. You know, the stories that'll be kept, they do have to be kept somewhere. But that this is the argument is that you don't have to um, focus a lot of energy on making that somebody's job to um, keep track of things because we'll all, it'll all just come to us the news that we need. All right, so that's, that's, you can do the counter-argument. I mean, even that assumes, though, some news person who's selecting and, or a lot of news people. Telling a story. That, yeah, to you know, choosing the bits and choosing what to present. Yeah. That you're then browsing through. And I, I think also the, the... Well, no, but what if it's just like through Twitter where you're following... Well, it still requires that act of that person mm -hmm. somewhere, seeing something, experiencing something, and sharing it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think ideally you'd have 
you'd have uh, you know every sort of community and groups that would would perform some function for themselves of cataloging, yeah. saving. Because I I think in this in the endeavor of sh you know learning and then communicating that learning, and especially the way the web it it moves so quickly, um, things can be rather hard to find. You know, you're not always going to find that article on a, you know, a keyword search maybe, especially mm -hmm. maybe a few months later. Mm -hmm. um, that there's, there could be some value in, in cataloging it or keeping it in a way that then you can refer to it and, sure. and relate it. Because, uh, well, back in the old days, you know, you have books, you have printed material that then becomes that, that, mm -hmm. that serves that function. But now when it's, the information is, is all diffuse. Right. Um, some way of making that a little more concrete or sort of pulling it off to make it yours, I yeah. think, can be helpful. Aside from ha maybe having to print out sheets of paper. Sure. I mean, you can really, you can also save, like, offline copies of things. On hard drives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It takes up virtually no space. So. Yeah. Yeah, interesting, though, that, that idea of data storage being such a crucial thing in replacing written books. And in one way, making it so much more secure in the, in a fire, you know, you can access that information still. But in the other sense, making it so fragile, because one day Google could step in. Imagine how many people's entire, like, life's work of writing is stored on Google. Right. Google's data centers. That's right. We're sort of more at the mercy. And there's also, I think, on the, on the end of Internet big internet actors in terms of these companies, content providers, they recognize the power of, you know, storage, basically, yeah, sure. and are moving to make everything streamed. In, in the, yeah. They don't, the, they recognize that s people storing stuff for themselves takes power away from these centralized yeah. providers of that information. Yeah. Um, just in the way they, you know, lobbied against VHSs, you know, the, the movie industry as, you know, the end of the movie, <laughs> the, the movie business. Um, they don't like offline storage, basically. And I think with information, you know, news and that sort of stuff, it's kind of that same way, mm -hmm. you know. I think I'm going to check on the boys in blue and red. They were down a goal in the 60th minute at home against Athletic Bilbao. And uh, so we'll take a quick break. In the time that we recorded that conversation, Barcelona came back to win the game. They scored two goals, just in case you were wondering. Thank you, Miles, for sharing a little bit from that book, The Confederacy of Dunces. I'll post a link so you can uh, find the book on the website. Uh, also, thank you to Miss Mary Jane for making everything so incredibly interesting. Many more conversations with Miles to come on this podcast, so you can have that to look forward to. Now we move on to a very special extended Things That Bother Me edition. This is called Things That Bother Me Kitchen Nightmares. some things that bother me. These all happen in the kitchen here at our family home in Carmichael. If I offend any of my dear, sweet family members who are listening, I'm very sorry. But for the sake of comedy, sometimes you have to throw people under the bus. This first one doesn't have anything to do with, with anybody else, really. It's, it's just about Mr. Coffee, our coffee maker, who lives on the counter um, in the corner underneath a, a cabinet above. And there's enough room for the coffee maker to fit. And the coffee maker then has a lid on the top that hinges up and back. And 
underneath the lid you can access the coffee grounds in their little basket and where the water is forced through to make coffee that's how you make coffee well the lid doesn't open all the way when the coffee maker is in its home underneath the cabinet on the counter it looks like it ought to there seems like there's plenty of room but when you go to open the lid you're going to run into the top of the the bottom of the cupboard and it opens enough that you can kind of get your hand in there and like reach out the basket of grounds if you're going to clean out the coffee maker but the other part of that is that there's the the plastic larger basket that holds the basket of grounds and if you really want to clean the coffee pot you ought to rinse that out too well that won't fit out you the lid won't stay up when it's under the cabinet because it, it's it's so long and hinged at the back so that you, you can't get it all the way up you can hold it with one hand and reach with the other hand to pull out the basket of grounds but the larger basket won't fit so then you have to slide the coffee maker out well I will slide it out and often there are other things on the counter so you have to move things out of the way to slide this coffee pot out I'll slide it out seemingly clear of the cabinet I'll lift up the lid and it will still just run into the bottom corner of the cupboard and flat back down so that I have to then clear out more things on the counter to get the pot all the way out. So basically the entire operation of the kitchen has to be focused on clearing this pot from underneath this cupboard so that you can open its stupid lid all the way to the point where it will stay so you can take out the plastic basket and clean it properly. Mr. Coffee's wife is named Miss Tea Kettle, and she is silver and metal, has a big old butt, big, big surface, big bottom surface, very large round base to this kettle, which is sensible if you have a large burner and you want to boil water quickly, water, boil water quickly, well, then the, uh, there's a greater surface area of water that is water that is being heated. Well, Miss Tea Kettle has quite a little whistle. And um, often people in this household, myself included, will decide that, ah, I'd like a cup of tea. You know, it's the afternoon, you're feeling a little sleepy, you want a little kick, or you've just eaten way too much and you want to help yourself digest, or your feet are cold, or whatever. It's tea time, so you go to put on a pot of tea, and you fill it up with some water, and you set it on the stove, and you turn the stove to high. Well, nothing really happens right away, because the stove takes a while to heat up, and then once the stove gets hot, then finally the water will start to heat. And so... Also, if you're making tea for, say, a number of people, or you're like I am, and you just always put in more water than you need because it, it just seems like there ought to be more water in there, water. Well, you'll put in a fair amount of water, and the uh, tea kettle will ostensibly take a long time to reach boiling. So you'll set it to boil, and then your mind thinks, well... There's some time here before my water water is going to be ready. So maybe I'll go to the bathroom. Or maybe I'll, I don't know, organize some things on my desk. Or worse, maybe I'll go outside and, and start doing some gardening, watering some plants. Well, soon... Because you've turned the stove to high and the tea kettle is engineered so well, 
that the water starts to boil. And it'd be one thing if there was a, a simple little whistle on this tea kettle that just went... You'd hear it and you'd stop what you were doing and walk over to the kitchen and take the tea kettle off the stove. Our tea kettle has a whistle that is 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 not so much a whistle but a scream and it's a it's a visceral shriek of a noise and it it builds it, it starts with a low whistle but the low whistle turns to the shriek so fast that you just you cannot get there in time and it starts out before you know it, is that that high-pitched shriek that echoes throughout the whole house and you are sprinting from wherever you are because if someone is taking a nap, they are now awake. Um, it's jarring and dis- deeply disturbing to the entire household. And often, uh, you know, requires a sprint and um, often has made me feel upset that someone neglected the tea kettle uh moral of the story is that it it really it really bothers me We now come to the things that bother me that that other people do sometimes, and this isn't so much an issue in in my current living situation in my kitchen. There's people are pretty responsible about doing dishes and cooking, and it's all very loving and and just nice. But uh, this is more an issue that sometimes occurs with roommates or just shared kitchens. Dish rack. This is where clean dishes are placed to dry. It's very useful. It's very important in a clean kitchen. Not everything can fit in the dishwasher, of course, or can go in the dishwasher without melting. So some things you have to wash by hand, and then you put them in the dish rack, and that's where they dry. And often they dry there automatically. It's called drip drying or air drying, and you don't have to do anything. You just set it, And then next time you come back, after a couple hours, the dishes are all dry and you can put them away. Well, sometimes there will be a full rack of dishes, or not even a full rack of dishes, but for this example, let's say it's a full rack of dishes that someone has carefully washed. And the dish rack is is totally occupied, almost totally occupied. And then there's someone that comes along that wants to contribute to the kitchen well actually mostly they want to absolve themselves of the guilt of leaving dishes in the sink so they don't want to be the person that leaves dishes in the sink and their idea of being a clean roommate is to um, do their dishes so they'll go and they'll have like a couple of they'll have a cup and maybe like a, a plate and a bowl say and they'll start washing their dishes in the sink, and they're probably thinking about how good they're being that they're washing their dishes, you know, and cleaning up their mess. Well, the dish rack is full, and the dishes there are clean. And the dishes there, for for the sake of this example, perhaps were originally made messy by our lovely roommate and cleaned perhaps by their other roommate. And they go then to wash their dishes, and they put them on the dish rack with all of the dried dishes. Now, some dish racks are oriented in in such a fashion that there's like an upper section and a lower section. And imagine on the lower section, there are a bunch of clean, dry knives and utensils. And so you've got some wooden spoons, some silverware, some chopping knives. And here comes this person with their dripping wet dishes, and they set them on the top portion of the rack that then proceed to drip all over the clean and already dry dishes below. Do you see the problem here? 
you've got all these dishes that were clean now are getting wet again. And if someone wants to empty the dish rack, well, they're going to have to wait until those two or three dishes are dry and until all the other dishes are dry. Or they'll have to bust out a towel and wipe off carefully each of the knives and utensils that just got drenched. It's a failure to, to, to grasp the whole picture of what happens, how a place stays clean. These are people that have no sense of uh, how to keep a house. This, another uh, alleg- parallel, allegorical, I was about to say, that wouldn't be right. A sort of uh, parallel example is the, the trash can or the recycling bin that is full and the housemate who uh, sees it and just stuffs their little piece of trash down on top of it. And they're obviously disconnected from the full cycle of cleaning that has to take place, whereby the trash, once it's full, is emptied and a new trash bag is placed in it. And then new trash can be, can be tossed in it. Or the dishes, where dishes are cleaned and placed on the dish rack, and then once their dishes are dried, they're put away. It's that following through that people that want to be clean roommates but don't really have any sense of how to be clean roommates will just sort of stay at that surface level of they'll throw their trash away, but they won't empty the trash, and they'll do their dishes, but they won't empty the dish rack. It really bothers me. I don't think there's much of an excuse for it, really. Um except for perhaps you've never lived alone. I think this is a really big reason why everybody should live alone so that they'll come up against that magical moment whereby the dish rack is totally full and I just imagine them there with their one little cup and their brow furrowed trying to find a landing place for it and then suddenly, well not suddenly, but slowly the truth dawns on them that this dish rack must be emptied, that these dishes are all mine, and that there are no magic dish fairies or kitchen fairies that are going to appear and empty this for me. Or trash fairies. There are no magical trash fairies that come and take out the trash. So if you haven't lived alone, or if you have no sense of of how a a kitchen stays clean, perhaps you should live alone, and you'll learn these lessons. And if you're a frustrated roommate like myself, and this is generally, of course, speaking about the past that I've experienced this, then just hang in there and, um, I don't know, call call people out on it, I guess, or, or start a podcast and complain about it uh, sort of passive-aggressively. These are the things that bother me. These are the things that bother me. Maybe they shouldn't. Maybe they shouldn't. But these are the things. These are the Emptying the dishwasher is also an important element of of keeping a clean house. And um, it's a task that, uh, you know, it's not quite as onerous as as doing the dishes that involves, you know, grubby food and scraps and smells and fats and all that jazz. You've got nice clean dishes and sometimes they're a little warm, which can be kind of exciting and and you're, you're putting them away. Well, it bothers me when this is done really noisily. I don't know what it is, but I think there's something, I think some people feel like if it's noisier, it's more effective, or when it comes to work and getting something done, if they make more noise, it means they're doing it more thoroughly, and that's not the case. You can empty a dishwasher just as well without making a ton of noise. In particular, plates are arranged on generally in the bottom section of the dish rack, dishwasher, and they're in rows. And you can, with, with a human hand, pick up, say, three or four small plates at once. 
And the plates are all sitting there separated by little plastic or plastic-coated dishwasher tines. Well, you pick them up with your fingers and then you collapse them all together into one, one stack at once. And this makes a real ruckus as they all clatter together. And then you reach up to the cupboard and you put them on the shelves. Well, you can, you can find, it's a matter of finding that edge, you know, where you're in control of the plates and when you let them go. And if you just narrow that margin a little bit, just really get guide those plates in there, you know, really just guide them in and follow through. Find that that fine moment where you're just just sort of grazing the, the plates below and you're setting them in and you're maintaining control of the plate until it's all the way over the other stack of plates before you let them go, you know, gently onto the stack. That would be great. That would be great. Because otherwise, you know, listening, I guess I'm a noise-sensitive fella, and I'd rather just not be in the kitchen if you're going to empty the empty the dishwasher in a noisy fashion. These are the things that bother me. These are the things that bother me. Maybe they shouldn't. Hi, my name is Gabriel Roberts, and today I'm here to talk to you about emotional hygiene. When you experience something in this life that brings up emotions, emotional hygiene is what allows you to process them safely and fully. Basically, don't expect that these emotions when they come up, that they will magically process themselves. There's some work involved, and this is the the process of staying emotionally clean, and it requires some good, solid emotional hygiene. Now that I've thoroughly introduced this concept, I'm going to preach to you a little bit. Um, well, we all experience emotional things, right? I know I have. And the, uh, the key here is, well, I'm going to give you a little step-by-step, um, way to, to process, process some emotions that you need to work, work with. Um, put on an emo song. That's the first step. I recommend, well, there's, there's, there's a lot of, you know, Elliot Smith is like a classic for this. Um, there's an artist named David Berkeley that is also very good for um, stirring up and, and releasing emotions. And then go ahead and think about the thing you're feeling emotional about. If it's replaying a scenario, if it's imagining some chain of events that makes you really sad that hasn't happened, um, if it's yeah, going play by play through something that you've gone play by play through many times already. Um, you know, whatever it is that brought up this emotion, the, the fact that it came up uh, is is proof that it's still there for processing. So um, don't don't tell yourself that it's like some trivial nonsense and that you're making a big deal out of nothing because it's all relative and. Even if you live a very sheltered life and the big emotional issues you face are uh, seemingly trivial, you know, matters of the heart. Matters of the heart are never trivial. And if it, if it feels, if you feel it, it's real. And, uh, and you know it. So don't, don't bullshit yourself and don't allow yourself to, that voice in your head to downplay things and, and think you're silly or uh, weak or dramatic. Don't tell yourself that you're being dramatic. Okay, this is like, this is you time right here. This is a little emotional hygiene session for yourself. So um, forget all those other voices. And then if you can, have, you know, have yourself a good cry. Really focus in on that uh 
event or that feeling or that image or whatever it is that um, you experienced, uh, listen to the music and if you you know feel those tears coming, let them let them come. And and the the key is to ignore again that self conscious voice that I've certainly developed. I mean, as a child, I cried pretty freely and frequently over the just the slightest little thing. But now I don't really. And as soon as I do, because it's so uncommon, there's a little voice in my head that goes, oh, oh, you're crying now? Oh, look at you. You're crying. What a, you know, oh, look how in touch with your emotions you are. Like this weird sort of at, at once critical and at the same time, um, like overly complimentary voice comes to me as soon as I start crying and it usually stops me from crying. So you gotta, if you hear that little voice, you gotta push right through it. And for me, the crying generally involves like a little bit of a shoulder, a little shoulder shimmy. You know what I'm talking about? A little like racking. Like I don't really get very good sobs, but it's like my whole body just starts like shaking a little bit. Well, that's like a that's a physical it's a physical response of your body to emotion and it's a release and it's important. And so if you need to, you know, start shaking your shoulders a little bit or whatever, whatever motion that that gets going, just just go with it. Um and it sort of what you're doing is you're taking something from the realm of imagination or the realm of untangible or the realm of of energy or spirit or emotion or whatever you want to call it and you're like you're bringing it into the physical through your body by crying so i want to say a shout out to all the crybabies out there you know who you are good on you for for crying uh, as much as you do um also of course movies for some people are going to be helpful uh, I watched a movie, it's about an old man that like starts uh, singing after his wife dies, Sp- spoiler alert, his wife dies, and that brought on some tears. So it could be a movie, it could be a song, but um, the important thing is that you let yourself be alone and really feel what it is that you're feeling in your heart. and. You know, if you don't, it's really just a matter of time. And the the sooner you face it fully, I think, the sooner it's going to be processed. And and then that allows you to be open to more uh, emotional experiences because that's what life's all about, right? We don't, would you really want to live a life, I know I wouldn't, where it's devoid of these like heartbreaking or heart-wrenching or whatever sort of emotional experiences it wouldn't be very much fun and you know maybe um maybe you you'll always get your heart broken but that's like i didn't really just get my heart broken guys just in case you're wondering but i did have like a very emotional experience and it reminded me of times that i have gotten my heart broken And that feeling and the tendency that I saw in myself this time to sort of um, go on with my life and stay in my head a little bit, even though I knew it was there and I knew that I had to get to it sooner or later, I just kept putting it off. And I put it off for like a few days. And I didn't really really engage fully with anything when I was in that state. Like I was just sort of hanging out – and so f- for anything that you do, it re- to do it well, I think it requires like full attention and your heart to be present. And if your heart is laden with some pain, well, then you're not going to want to bring it to bear on the situation. You're just going to keep it down there. So go ahead and process that emotion and allow your heart to become whole again and bigger. It gets bigger every time. And then you're basically saying to the universe that you're game for more, that you're game for more emotional experiences. And uh, I think that's exciting. All right, folks, them's the beans. Those are the cakes. 
Those have been the apples. You have smelled the candy, you have felt the limes, you've rubbed salt on everything, and now it's time to go to bed. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions, please send me an email to gaberobertsart at gmail.com. I hope you enjoyed this hodgepodge segment of this podcast. I know I did. You can find all sorts of things out about the podcast at gaberobertsart.com. You can support the podcast by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes, uh, giving us a rating or a review, and by us, I mean me. And you can also uh, support us by visiting the support page at gaberobertsart.com. I'm leaving you with a song that I've loved for many moons, and I can play it decently on the guitar. It's called New Slang. It's by the Shins. Adios. Gold teeth and a curse for this town We're all in my mouth Only I don't know how They got out, dear Turn me back into the pit I was when we met I was happier then with no mindset and If you took To me like A gull Takes to the wind The light I jumped From my tree And I'd dance Like the king of the eyesores The rest of our lives Were fared well New slang When you notice the stripes Dirt in your fries Hope it's right when you die Old and bony Dawn breaks like a bull through the hall Never should have called But my head's to the wall And I'm lonely And if you took to me like a Gold takes to the wind Light had jumped from my tree And I'd have danced like the king of the eyesores The rest of our lives would have fared well Godspeed all the bakers of dawn They all cut their thumbs And bleed into their buns Until they melt away I'm looking in on the good life I might be doomed never to find Without a trust or flaming fields Am I too dumb to refine And if you took to me like Would light a dance like the queen of the eyesores And the rest of our lives would have fared well